this session, we discuss the intersections of the professional, personal, and political, feminism within cultural backdrops, and the influence of international geopolitics in our lives. Welcome to the AFTA podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Manijit Danishpur. Dr. Manijit Danishpur is a system-wide director and distinguished professor of marriage and family therapy in the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Alliant International University in California and a licensed marriage and family therapist with more than two decades of academic, research, and clinical experience. She is from Iran and identifies herself as a third wave feminist. Dr. Danishpur's main research areas, publications, and presentations have been centered on gender and power, multiculturalism, social justice, third-wave feminism, and premarital and marital relationships. She has recently published a book titled Gender, Power, and Global Social Justice, The Healing Power of Psychotherapy. This book offers a centered and balanced perspective about the impact of gender and power on men's and women's relationships with each other and their ecological context to help mental health practitioners privilege client voices, promote justice in gender relationships, and manage the impact of socio-political issues in therapeutic practice. Dr. Danishpur, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hello. As always, I'd like to ask our guests, uh, what's been capturing your attention these days in your work? A lot has been capturing my attention at work. Um, I am originally uh, from Iran. I've been living in the U.S. for the past four decades. Um, and uh, by, by family background, I have always been interested in sociopolitical issues um, in our family. We have always uh, talked about, um, because we are from a Middle Eastern country and everyday life is impacted by what was happening in the um, Western societies, at least that has been true for the past 500 years. Um, and, and so that has been part of my personal identity. And um, this year, um, part of 2023 and uh, uh, last part of 2022, so much has been happening in in Iran um, that has created um, hopes, anxieties, um, disappointments, a um, lot of excitements uh, about what is happening with the um, woman-led um, revolution in terms of their sense of identity and what has been happening. And so um, I have to back up and give you a little bit of a context to know um, why this is on my mind and, and that connects to what I do with research and what I do in academia. Um, as you said in your introduction, um, I'm a cisgender woman and raised in a family. My dad was a philosopher and um, very, very advanced in his thinking about men and women's relationships and believe that gender is a social construct and women must defy the norms to change societal um, constraints, regardless of their socio-political and religious doctrine. And so um, 
I um, was, when I was a child, we owned a, uh, a private, bo all boys private university. And, and as a social experiment, I believe, my dad enrolled me in all boys school from kindergarten. And I was there until fifth grade. Uh, the, the transition to um, middle school was sixth grade. And so for the first six years of my, my development as a, uh, as a, as a woman, I was the only girl in all boys school. And so that helped me, um, didn't know at the time, uh, it was an anomaly and, and um, boys were uh, um, annoyed, pleased, um, disappointment, disappointed at the situation because I was the um, uh, principal's da uh, daughter. At the same time, I was the only girl. They didn't know what to do with me. Everybody plays soccer. I had to do PE. They would put me in two different um, groups, um, uh, one one week in, in one team and the next team in the opposite team. And, and, and wow. boys will talk to each other right in front of me to the, to the PE teacher and say, can she be in the other team? She's very bad in, at what she does. And so that set level of honesty um, created with boys. Um, I thought that's how everybody communicates. People have feelings about something. And as I transitioned to middle school, I went to all girls school because that's how it is in Iran. And um, it was a new development for me. And mm. so um, now, all these years later, when I became a therapist and, and went to academia, actually that um, gender-based idea that gender is a social construct actually helped me work with both um, men and women in a um, very different way. I understand men in, in the issues that societies will create for them, and I understand women in another context. And so when I, when I came to United States um, to study, I continued to, um, uh, I, my family has religious background, I continued to wear hijab. To me, it wasn't a, um, a uh, you know, the beginning was a religious symbol, but over time it became a symbol for wanting to be different mm. and show that you can be open-minded and, and um, have new ideas. Um, and at the same time, you don't have to look like the Western hegemony of, of an, an, an enlightened woman. And so and this I is in the United be, States? In the United States, yeah. yeah. So I, I actually, I got my undergrad degree from University of Utah. I studied in Utah. Um, and then my, grad, my, my graduate degree also from University of Utah. And then I moved to Minnesota for my doctorate. And so um, because I grew up in, in a family that allowed me to um, see myself beyond gender, um, I continue to see myself that way. And I couldn't, perhaps at the beginning, because I couldn't speak English that well and I couldn't read um, people's body language, um, perhaps part of it is because I was in Utah and Mormons are very welcoming and open to different religions and, and they were constantly talking about the similarities with Islam as opposed to differences. Mm. And so I didn't know how people perceive me um, mm. as, a, as a hijabi woman until I came to University of Minnesota and they were telling me that as a clinician, there's going to be, uh, I'm going to have a hard time seeing clients um, and in um, 
being a clinician. And so they challenged um, my, my perception of myself. And that continued um, after I graduated. My plan was to go back to Iran. And, and my two sisters are professors. My dad was a professor. I was going to go back and teach. And, and through this process of seeing myself from the, from the eyes of people outside of me, I realized that if I go back, I'm yet another professor, female professor at, the, at one of the universities in Iran. But there are so much misconceptions about women and women's issues in this society, um, especially for people from, from different kinds of backgrounds that I need to stay. And, and it became my calling. I'm going to fast forward to year 2022 after being um, in academia for 27 years and, and kind of representing the, this perspective of how different I am from everyone else um, in the field um, in terms of my thinking, my political views, um, the, the uprising in Iran happened. Right. And, and all of a sudden I noticed that women, not that I didn't know this before for the past 40 years, but I noticed that women are being um, uh, jailed and prisoned and, and harassed um, over a piece of cloth that, and this, kind, this part of the world I was using to stand up against the um, Western hegemony of how they define women. Uh, Middle Eastern woman and and um, Muslim woman, and so um, after five decades of wearing hijab and having that as my um, political stance, I actually took off my hijab in November. Um, wow! In the middle of all these um, conversations that were that were happening in Iran, and felt that I, for the first time, my national identity and my connection with the oppressed women of Iran um, worth um, the um, sacrificing my political um, ideology of how I wanted to stand up against um, this perspective. And so um, I am now um, a, um, you know, what, I was, what is on my mind is how even at my age, I'm turning 59 this year, we need to have a um, new way of looking at ourselves and how that becomes part of our new identity. And I want to show that to my students. I, I was teaching one course, showed up in class without my scarf. I have uh, you know, students who were like, they thought I forgot something <laughs> or uncomfortable. And, and, and um, I started talking about it. And I said, you know what? Um, I need to model um, for, for people that you can always change and you can always have newer and newer ideas um, in terms of how you see your own sense of identity. But that has been on my mind um, in terms of um, rethinking uh, the discourses in our field about um, gender and privilege and oppression and um, what is happening globally in terms of these ideas. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And I guess uh, if I could reflect a couple things and please uh, edit me if I misrepresent anything. Um, and it's just for our listeners, it is February 2023. So it's been quite a number of months now that the revolution, um, or at least the revolutionary spirit in Iran has been 
uh, been carried forward, uh, like you said, by women and other folks in Iran and internationally, of course. Um, what what kind of stands out for me in your story is that in the context of being exposed to a pretty uh, pretty unique in some ways, but also like direct training around the gendered experiences that people have as you went from an all-boys school to an all-woman school in Iran and then find yourself here in the U.S. And I love part of your story here, correct me if I'm wrong, because the hijab becomes a symbol of liberation and it's shifting as you're moving across different political landscapes. Mm -hmm. That in Iran, the hijab has a particular um, story of oppression and in the U.S., it actually becomes a story of liberation in the ways that, um, if I could say, like a strongly Christian nation has, uh, and it's a kind of Islamophobic stance, perceives hijabi women. Um, and so as you're kind of moving across the U.S., and I, part of your story that I'm really drawn to as well is it really names the American rhetoric of, oh, we need to like liberate women in Iran or we need to liberate Middle Eastern women and that people come to the United States and become feminists. And I love that if I heard you right, you came to the U.S. and you're like, oh, there's some serious problems here with gender. And actually, uh, the best use of me might be actually here in the United States, given that I have a pretty rich history in my family doing some good work in Iran. Mm-hmm. And so now as a clinician, correct me if I'm wrong, you're here positioned uh, as, a, as an instructor, as a professor, as a researcher, as a clinician, and as you're observing and kind of participating with the revolutionary spirit of Iran, taking the hijab off of after many, many years. Yeah. I also want to acknowledge, uh, Dr. Danishpur, that um, I don't want to ask questions that position you in a politically sensitive context, knowing that this is a public podcast and that you may have family in Iran, as do I. So I, I just do. want to honor that. So please don't feel, feel compelled to answer any questions that I ask. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear about how some of this work may have inspired the book you wrote, because in some of the ways, the book that you're writing about was the healing power of psychotherapy was a component there. And I'm curious if you could speak to some of the healing power as it relates to your, your own story of the head job, if that's a decent question. So uh, it's ironic that I... Um... I had the plan to, I believe, write this book um, many, many, many years ago uh, because my my thesis, my dissertation, all about gender and, and relationships between men and women. I believe that the field of family therapy has become very strong in looking at generational aspects of our relationships. Mm. We are good at genograms and looking at how one generation after another can pass on the trauma, the love, the anxiety, you know, whatever it is. We, we become very good at that, very uniquely positioned in the field. But when it comes to gender, um, we haven't been not only the front runner, um, we have been criticized a lot by, um, of course, um, first and second wave feminists um, that, that we haven't looked at the concept, the construct of gender um, as much as we should. And so that has been part of what I has always been part of. I've been a clinician now for three decades. Um, and, and at the same time that I have been in academia since I got my 
um, doctoral degree and um, all my research. I have a book on uh, called Family Therapy with Muslims. Many people have criticized me that I use the work Muslims. Um, perhaps many what? didn't buy the book uh, because first of all was um, at, at many fronts there have been conversations about that. One is that Muslims have been saying this is this has nothing to do with the teaching of Islam. That wasn't my idea at all. I'm not a scholar in religion. I don't know anything uh, valuable to add to the conversation. People in the in in the West have been saying, "What do you mean, Muslims? What what are, what what ideas are you trying to?" So there are all kinds of. I mean, they don't they don't say that, but I know that there are all kinds of Muslims, mm -hmm. right? Many people are are culturally Muslim. They were born. I I always talk about my own destiny. I say I was born in Iran, and my family was. Muslim. So that's a geographical destiny that I have to deal with. The same that's, uh, as someone who's Christian, who's, who's Jewish. It's geographical destiny. And so what we do with that is it becomes part of our everyday struggle. And so um, I've always been vocal about this. Perhaps that's why I said at the beginning that being with all boys and then being with all women, I have so much um, uh, sympathy for men um, within the context of psychotherapy. And, and, and for years, I have done training on um, uh, about men in therapy. Um, I do really well clinically working with men. Um, and in couples therapy, um, I'm able to keep men uh, in therapy little bit longer because I understand what happens in psychotherapy when it comes to men and talking and in keeping up with women um, in the session with the, with our brain going 5,000 different ways and, and he can concentrate on one and then gets lost within all of this and make it defensive. And then all of a sudden uh, mm -hmm. it's two women in the session because I have, I can't ignore my own gender dynamics. So right. this book, um, I, I have been teaching a course on a seminar on gender uh, before I came to Alliant um, at, at my uh, other university that I was there for 18 years. Um, and so the, the, my um, AMFT conferences, you know, different places that I go, gender has always been part of the conversations that I've had. I understand is not very popular because it's dividing because, you know, you say you talk about men, women are like, oh, my gosh, this is not what I what I um, appreciate. Um, you talk about women's oppression. Then men is like, there we go again. You know, it's all mm -hmm. about what about me? What about my pain? And so I understand many people can't handle the balanced part of uh, our gender perspectives. And so this book was going to be about talking about both gender, men and women, and their struggles in relationships. And, and so I used a, an, an um, uh, anthropological, at the same time, sociological, at the same time, uh, psychological perspective. So handling from macro to micro, because I felt, and, and that's what I do in the session, that when a couple come to me and say she has been neglecting me since she became a mother, and instead of looking at it as 
oh, your wife doesn't pay enough attention to you and, and you are miserable in this relationship, I'll take it to the macro level and talk about the identity of a mother versus a wife and, and which becomes salient and how society actually reinforces that idea. And, and so I take him at macro level, both the, the couple, and talk about their positions in terms of their gender and gender socializations. And then I'm able to talk about what happens in their relationship and take it to micro level. So that's what I did in, in, in my book. In every chapter, I'm talking about what is happening globally, what is not fair in terms of gender dynamics, and that's the social justice perspective. And then how can psychotherapy help? Um, and, and just kind of bringing it all together in terms of war, in terms of political issues, in terms of nature versus nature, um, you name it. Every chapter talks about um, uh, something related to and and also the impact of colonizations in in um, the gender perspectives that how white men are viewed differently than that men of color when it comes to issues of gender. So right. when I wrote the book, it's funny that I talked about in the in the introduction. I talked about me being a hijabi woman from Iran, and and how the book is not going to get. I mean, all, the entire. Uh, identity <laughs> that I described was a um, hijabi woman from Iran. And then the book got published in November. And in November, I actually decided to transition out. So uh, it has been an interesting um, journey for me that people read the book and go, oh, we are expecting a, uh, a woman. And I've been presenting in the, in the field for so many years and that has been my identity and so now i'm completely out of my comfort zone mm. with myself and with other people and and so it is a a it was a very difficult place to be for all those years because i felt so alone and um now i'm alone in a different way um because people don't don't understand um the complexity of, of these issues that, that come together and create and, and like, what, right. What's going on. And let me know if this is a fair capture, a simple oversimplified, of course, but some capture of the complexities that like, like you were speaking about being a woman from the middle East and I'll relate as you know, my parents are immigrants from the middle East. So I was born here, but we'd go to Iran every summer. So having a highly politicized identity in life, your whole life. And, being exposed to the multiplicity of narratives in both contexts, um, the ways that like being a hijabi woman has shifted depending on the political landscape you're in. And even you could be in the same geographic location and some event would happen in Iran and completely shift how you stand exactly. and sit in the hijab. And then even to the point that you've now written this book, it gets published which congratulations, um, takes a lot of work. And in the moment it's published, your identity is completely shifted and kind of created a space between you and the work now that you've, at least the way you've identified yourself in the yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to appreciate this piece too about being culturally Muslim because I... I'm not a particularly religious person, but I did grow up in a Muslim family and that languaging is language that I use because linguistically in Farsi, we say inshallah, we say mashallah in moments of like celebration, like it's in the language, whether or not you're religious. Exactly. So I just want to, I want to like kind of expose that to our listeners that 
it's not just like a choice. It's a function of the language in a lot of ways, if that's a fair way to say, at least in Farsi. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, as we're talking about the pretty profound impact that the revolution has had in Iran, um, particularly as you're addressing gender and the revolution, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, is addressing gender. Um, how would you describe your kind of identity now? Like, is post hijabi or like? Uh, I, I I think um, it's a, knowing that it's you know it's a very fair yeah very fair question. Uh, my children have been um, coming along this journey with me um, in terms of how I define how they they say you're so gutsy. Um, and mm. you, you can, at this age, you are still making uh, different kinds of decisions. I think my, my identity as a, with, based on my, um, um, uh, geographical destiny, right? Mm. Um, my identity is very much, um, Iranian, very much culturally Muslim, very much in agreement that, that God's idea of, of, connections with human, that higher power uh -huh. exists in all human, um, uh, uh, you know, in over the centuries in, in so many different places. And doesn't matter how we feel about it, it can, it, it's going to continue to be. So in, in my book on uh, Mos uh, family therapy with Muslims, I specifically talk about, I'm talking about Muslims as a social group not a religious group. I want to show that incest happens in these families. Let's use theories to deal with them. I, I want to talk about infidelity happens in these families. Let's see how we can use theory to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And many people actually at conferences approach me and say, I just bought your book. And in your feminist family therapy chapter, uh, you're talking about the same things that I as a Christian talk about um, uh, feminist work, feminist for use of feminist therapy. And that's the idea. I want people to see people that are part of that region as also human mm. that deal with the same pain, uh, relational pain yes. and, 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 and cultural restrictions that any society can provide. So I'm not, I haven't, um, I'm not outside of, of any of it. It's just I'm trying to stand up against a, a perspective or a, 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 a definition of me that people have portrayed that how could you be an open-minded woman mm. outside of Iran and still I've been accused of being the spy of the uh, uh, um, uh, government for all the years that I have been in the U.S. because I came right after the revolution. It's like, how, how, if you're not doing something with, with Iran's government, why would you represent them? And I wasn't representing them. It was more than that. And so I've spent all these decades right. explaining to people that it's not about the culture. But you're absolutely right that, the, that in Iranian society, the color of your dress, the, the heel of your shoe, uh, define what kind of a family, what kind of a religious person you are. So if you have high heels and a 
pink dress, it says something different than if you're wearing all black and then you have all kinds of different kinds of coverages. Yeah. So my, my core identity is still a fighter, very political, very much against the definition that, that, that societies have of us in terms of the, the, the feeling sorry for us. And then look, when it comes to really saying something, I just published a, a paper in, in um, a journal of feminist family therapy called uh, uh, Woman Life Freedom. And, and I talked about where are the feminist women that were so incredibly worried about us hijabis being mm. so oppressed by mm. men in our sides of the world. Where are you? Um, why aren't there any conversations? Zizek, actually, the philosopher Slavi yeah. Zizek, um, actually had a, an, a message to Iranian um, uh, uh, people and said that no longer any Western country or you, you know, any European or, or Western country can claim that they are ahead of you when it comes to intellectual abilities because no place around the globe had a woman-led revolution with men behind it. Mm. This is the first time in history. So I'm very proud of where we are in our, in our, in our history and our development. And inside of me, um, I am the same. I believe the same things um, about how we have to stand up against this colonized um, perspective of us. Um, and now I'm fighting a different fight. I'm standing mm. up um, against a different kind of uh, uh, oppression. Mm. I'm, I'm really inspired listening to you, Dr. Danishpur, for so many reasons that I won't have time to get into in this conversation here. But there's some, I guess I'm asking this question to you as a, from my own heart, I guess, because there's resonance for me. Like, do you have a sense that the, you're describing this isolation, like the sense of isolation, like you were isolated before. Now there's like this different kind of isolation. And I guess I wonder if that isolation, as I reflect on my own experience, if it's a function of never having like a political comfort, like there's no place to ever politically be. Um, and what I, I guess to like expand on my question, I have found myself isolated in so many ways with my Persian identity, not just with Americans, but of with my fellow oh. Iranians, uh -huh. um, friends and family. Um, like for example, a lot of my work uh, recently has been focused on um, the practice of decoloniality in marriage and family therapy. I did a presentation in Tehran, or it was during the pandemic, so it was via Zoom, it was, but it was in a university in Tehran, Iran. And I was having my cousin uh, who's, who immigrated here recently um, take a look at it. And as he's going through it, he's like, he kind of like looks up and smirks at me. He's like, you know, this is a very conservative presentation you're doing. And I was like, tell me more. And he's like, well, all the decolonial stuff that you're talking about that's very progressive here in the U.S. is part of the rhetoric of the Iranian government. So it's going to sound really, exactly. really conservative over yes. there. And I was like, oh, well, shoot, I don't know how to position now. Because I stand by these ideas, and it is part of the rhetoric that the government uses. Yeah. So in that moment, I felt very isolated. As the revolution was occurring the last uh, several months to half a year, I, you know, in the decolonial stance, my message to my Iranian community out here in the U.S. was like, we don't want, I don't want the U.S. to get involved. And then that would upset a lot of my colleagues, rightfully, because they're like, well, are you supporting the regime? I'm like, no. 
I don't know. Oh. I don't support the regime. Of course exactly. not. I also don't support U.S. intervention. And I just there you go. There never you go. felt any comfort in any statement I made. Exactly. So that's kind of where my question comes from. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, uh, we, we may, I, I hear you completely because I, I, several times I've been invited to do um, keynote presentations in Iran. And while the faculty may have appreciated my stance about colonizations and all of that, students didn't. Mm. And felt that I come all the way from United States of America, and, and like you said, I say the same things that, that governments love to talk about, the enemy, the, you know, the people that, are, that, that don't want our independence and things like that. So I believe there is, um, there is um, loneliness in that perspective. At the same time, if you are a multidimensional thinker um, and, and can do both and as opposed to either or, um, there are not that many people who are going to be um, uh, uh, on your side. Um, and so that has been, that is going to be a struggle in your life and that's going to be a struggle in mine um, because I have said the same thing every time I say something. That's why people were saying you must be the spy of the, right. of the Iran government because it's like, what? You don't want, we want, they, all this freedom go there. I'm like, yeah, we all want freedom, but we want a, a homegrown. Right. Um, and Iranian-led. Um, you know, exactly. We don't want another Afghanistan. We don't want another Iraq. Yes. Um, but Syria. It, gets, it gets an isolated perspective. Well, this is maybe a kind of a silly question. Uh, um, but I'm thinking back to the comment you made about your colleagues or whoever it was at University of Minnesota who was so concerned for you at the time and your clinical work. I mean, to what degree were they right? Or, I mean, what was your experience as a hijabi woman? And how, what have you noticed in the shift? You know, at the time, I thought, because they told me you can get a family studies degree and go back to Iran and practice there, you know, become a, a healing psych psychotherapist there, whatever, you know, laws they have. And I took it, at the time, I took it as they care so much that they are protecting me. They're saying, you won't be able to. You're not from this culture. You don't understand. You have an accent. Your name, no one can pronounce. And, and because I, was, I grew up in a family that said, never say no to any new opportunities, I took it as, what if, what if I go and find a clinic that, that will give me a chance? And, and believe it or not, at that time, um, in-home therapy was something that was happening in Minnesota and, and people didn't want to go to people's home. Mm. I started with in-home therapy, clueless about going in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone, no pager, nothing. At that time in 1990s, we didn't have access to anything and go to a farm and work with family. It may not be the, the smartest idea, but to me, it was just so exciting that mm. I would go there and people would just stare at me like, who are you? I mean, we're talking about at the time that there was no, not, not, not much exposure to people who, who looked you know, like me. And so I, I was seeing myself from outside. So I was very careful um, about how I approached people and put them at ease and mm -hmm. made fun of myself or joked with them or something. So I developed 
to be honest, a lot of skills interacting with people, trying to put them at ease that helped me to help them clinically. And correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, culturally Iranians have a highly refined practice of hospitality and kind of putting people at ease in some ways, if that's a fair statement. Exactly. You know, it just, <laughs> whatever, whatever was part of my identity, I, I used it. And there were times that I, I wrote in the, in the in introduction of my other book, I said, I owe my clinical skills to not as much to my supervisors and my professors than to my clients mm. who taught me how to become a good clinician because they hung in there with me um, not having complete sentence, you know, correct sentence structures or or, or correct or, or finish my sentence because they knew what I want to say, but I couldn't say it so well in English. And so it made me... Um, a good um, clinician because I struggled to do it. And I had the, uh, I, I can say the, the um, family um, uh, good attachment, I always say that, that, that came with believing in my ability to not hear no and do something with, um, with my context, whatever was going on, I'm like, okay, let's see how I can challenge this. Let's see if I, I can do this. And so I owe it a lot to um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the people that I got to work with. And, and one of my, my professors told me at the end of my training said, you know, what I've noticed about you, you may not, you may not speak English that well, but you're good with connections. And I developed that in relations with people because I had to, right? That that was my my resource. I didn't have the the um, didn't look like and 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 I was in Minnesota. I mean, you, you're living in California is very multicultural. Now when I go back to Minnesota, I'm like, wow, everybody's white, right? But I didn't have that perspective. I thought right. in Utah, I thought that's America, and people yeah. were joking that. If you lived in Utah, you didn't live in America. I didn't know what, what it means. Then in Minnesota and then in California. So I um, developed professionally, clinically, um, as, a, as a professor, all over to people that gave me a chance, really, and, and sat there with me and, and believed that I could be helpful to them. That's beautiful. A beautiful description of a really rich journey. Well, and uh, Dr. Donishpur, as we're kind of like wrapping up here, I guess I wonder, um, at least I think you have better uh, perspective on this than I do, but it strikes me that I've seen a lot more um, Iranian family therapists kind of entering the field these days. Um, I imagine particularly compared to like when you were entering the field. Um, what hopes do you have for this generation of Iranian family therapists coming in? I'm, I'm really hoping uh, because our field is getting away from systemic thinking. Mm -hmm. We have become more linear thinkers. Um, family therapy, the traditional family therapy, five people in the room arguing with each other and giving the therapist a hard time. Couples just kind of having um, big, their biggest arguments in the, in the therapy room. We're getting away um, from that and individual therapy is becoming more of the norm. Um, we are referring out, uh, and everybody is a couple therapist. It doesn't have to be a marriage and family therapist. Everybody is a family therapist. It doesn't have to be marriage and family therapist. So my hope for my Iranian um, uh, colleagues is is to honor the family 
the importance of family connections. Because at the end of the day, they are with us for 45 minutes, 23 hours out of that day, plus the other six days of the week, they are with their families. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how, and, and it's interesting that a, a society like America that is very individualistic, family therapy actually grows, right? And in all cultures, people go, why do I want to take my family to family therapy when they're already so much into my business and everything that I do? So I do understand that part of collectivism versus individualism way of way of being. And so, but but at the same time for, for Iranian family therapists, for all of us in the field, regardless of of our cultural background, um, my hope is that we go back to um, the power of family relationships because that's what helped um, health of our relationship relies on family relationships, not the best individual therapy that we may do really well in the field. Dr. Danishpur, thank you so much for joining us i want to encourage everyone to check out her book titled gender power and global social justice the healing power of psychotherapy and she's here in southern california at Alliance university uh overseeing multiple campuses uh so i encourage folks to connect with dr danishpur thank you so much you're welcome thank you